is idols and offenses. Now, I preached last Sunday on communion, and when I started in on a communion message, I had jotted 1 Corinthians 10 down quite a while back, and as I started studying 1 Corinthians 10, I realized that it kind of goes a different subject than what we usually have for communion. And so through the events that happened, I, I guess I volunteered to preach this Sunday. Um, and so I continued in my studies on 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and trying to understand what all is in here. It's going to be uh, covering the whole chapter. It, it's hard to know what, what to... Uh, really study into there <clears throat> you kind of go a lot of different ways on on a lot of these things that are in here but probably the main thing to do was just to look at each of the verses and try to understand what the verses in scripture say it'd be fun to give you my opinions and my ideas about things but that doesn't go as far as when we really understand what the word of god is saying and as I told my wife, I said, it's, it's safer, rather than me giving you my ideas and my opinions, is just to let God give you direction through what the Word says. There's 90 plus people here, 80, 100, I don't know what the number is. And God knows all those thoughts and things that are taking place, situations that you're faced with. I, I don't know those things. And Scripture can speak to all of us. So it, it will be a little bit kind of going here and there, but we're going to try to stay in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and see what we can learn today. And as the springboard, just to give you an idea why this came about the way it did, in verse, six, in verse 16, it talks about the cup of blessing, and is it not the communion of the blood of Christ, the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? And when I started studying that, this kind of branched out into what, what was Paul dealing with here. And so the background setting for this is that Paul was writing to the, to the uh, Corinthians, ones that lived there in Corinth. And there's probably a lot more I don't know of that took place in Corinth, but the one big thing they had was is they worshipped idols. And we see that when he, when he talks about it in here. Um... So we're just going to go down through the verses, but just keep in mind, I mean, there's other chapters, like chapter 8 has a lot to do with the subject, there's other references in, but I just want to go down through verse by verse in chapter 10 and pull out what is given here and what Paul was, Paul was speaking about. And I'm not sure if I'm even going to take the time to read it, because I'll probably come back and repeat each of the verse, but... Um, just giving you that overview that you would get from reading it is uh, the first part here he's given a history of a little bit of what Israelites went through and what took place and then he turns around and, and says here in verse I alluded to 16, 15 and 16 he, he starts in on, on uh, who you're communing with and, and what you're doing as far as uh, the people that were uh, offering to idols um, can you can you do that? And then the last part of the verse or chapter gets into uh, some of the 
nitpicky things of how to deal with it and what I call the gray areas of life and, it, and uh, see what we can learn, learn from those verses as well. So 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, first verse, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Now, the first word is moreover. So you got that setting of he's taken place, you know, what was even back in other chapters. And it could be uh, quite a few things, but just speaking to the different issues, he just comes down to it says, moreover, brethren, I would not that you would be ignorant. And ignorant basically is, is uh, making you aware of this. He's like, do you remember this? Do you remember what took place? Don't forget how... It says how our, that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And under the cloud is referring to um, when they were led by the cloud, children of Israel. I should point out, if you didn't know who the fathers were, that's, that's who we're talking about. This is your ancestors from way, way, way back. And uh, Paul could probably trace them the whole way back through there. And he's saying our fathers, way back. You know, we're under the cloud and they pass through the sea. They remember when Moses stretched out his rod and that Red Sea was parted and they delivered in a, in a big way. They, they walked through on dry land. And he's saying in verse 2, and, all, <clears throat> and we're all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And even 3 and 4, some of these kind of go together. It says in 3, and did all eat the same spiritual meat. In verse 4, and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. You can get into a lot of, of parallels, what's taking place here. Um, and even to, to really understand verse 2, and we're all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Uh, I don't want to take it too far, but we heard this morning already about Boaz being a type of Christ. And I'm not sure how many people in the Bible can be a type of Christ, but Moses here was uh, in some ways a type of Christ. He interceded between God and the people, and maybe in different ways than what we would have heard of in Sunday school with, with, with Boaz. But nonetheless, they were uh, baptized, would have been like put into, they were... Uh, they were with Moses in, in the cloud and in the sea, and they did eat the same spiritual meat and all did drink the same spiritual drink. Basically, that was, they got the water from the rock, and they had manna from God. It, it came down from heaven, and that supplied them. And so when spiritual drink here and, and spiritual... Uh, Food, not necessarily in, in the spiritual way, but it was, it was from God, is the word that you would take as the spiritual part of it. it. It was physical drink and physical food for them. But it was coming from, and the end of verse 4 says, For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And that is what we have to remember today. That spiritual rock followed them, meaning that uh, God was with them. And it says specifically that that rock was Christ. Now, of course, you have the Trinity, 
God the Father, God the Son, but some of the commentaries, and, and it's interesting to look at, that that rock was Christ. Before he even came to earth, he was already doing the work of the Father, and it could have been some of his work to uh, be the rock for the, for the children of Israel. It was, I think, mentioned in our devotional, and I didn't jot it down, but there was the word rock stuck out to me, I think, in Deuteronomy that Stephen was reading. We know a rock is unchanging, it's unmovable. And this rock is in capital letters. And we can hold on to that today. God was with them, he'll be with us today. Verse 5. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. If you didn't know what overthrown means, it is... In the NIV, it says that their bodies were scattered over the desert. And I did not realize, and just want to inform you, if you forgot, that out of the 600,000 men, approximately, that left Egypt, only two of them made it to the Promised Land. And if you do some calculations like somebody did, that's 150 people a day that died in the wilderness. <clears throat> Why? It says God was not pleased with them. Well, that's still a little... He wasn't pleased with them. Well, what, do you, what, does, what does that mean? Well, there's some examples coming up here. But to think about... Um, I just, I, I forgot what they went through in the wilderness. And there, there's a, you could, you could study into all that. And the, lots to do with that. But it says, with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Verse 6, now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And Paul's setting up the thing here of what these examples are. He's introducing some of these examples that happened to the children of Israel. But the main point is here, as an overview, we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And going to verse 7. Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So here's the first example that they were coming out of Egypt and they, for, they weren't sure what happened to Moses when he went up on the mount and they, the people brought their earrings together, uh, their gold together, and Aaron forms a golden calf and says, here's your God that brought you out of Israel. And that is being an idolater. That's worshiping an idol. And along with that, it says the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And you don't think about that a whole lot, but it might make sense later when Paul has to deal with the eating and the drinking that goes along with idol worship. It also goes along with our worship, not just idol worship. We have fellowship meal, food, eating. It, it fits together. But the, the point is, is like which, which one... Uh, Where's your heart at with what you're doing with that? <clears throat> and I don't have it in my notes, but 
why did these people so quick to worship a calf after they were delivered? They set up a god. They made, and I briefly in reading it, there was a certain god in Egypt that would have been in the form of a, of a calf. Uh, and that's the reason I think that they did that. And somewhere it talks about serving the gods that were on the other side of the flood. And that could mean the, the, the um, I might get myself in trouble now, but I think you could refer to that as the flood itself, literally, but also the flood as in, in uh, on the other side of the sea. And maybe it does say that too. I, going out here where I don't have um, things down for sure. But apparently the children of Israel were prone to serve idols right kind of from the get-go. Even after God delivered them, they came out of Egypt, and within that short time, they were ready to make an idol and worship it. And that's what it says. Neither be ye idolaters as they were, neither be ye idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Verse 8. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day, Three and twenty thousand. And you could go back and read that account. But the uh, what was happening again was is that the men were being seduced by the daughters of Moab. And it talks there again of that they would uh, come to idol worship and the, and the um, what all is included with that and the and. I want to reference a story, but. I'm afraid the clock's going to go pretty fast. How the plague started when this the, the uh, this Israelite brings this Moabitish woman right in front of everybody, and Aaron's son uh, can't think of his name right now. Just filled with anger and rage, just takes a spear and chases them right into their tent where they were running away from, and he runs the spear right through both of them. And God says. There, that satisfied my anger. This evil that's taking place because of what he did, the plague was stopped. And it says because that's what stopped it before more of them would have died. But in one day, three and 20,000 were killed. It's because of their lusting after evil things. And you go to verse 9 and it says, Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. And this, this story, uh, there again, is somewhat familiar about um, tempting Christ. And there's, there's multiple references in Numbers, and you, it, it's kind of hard to pull all the stories together exactly because there's, there's numerous times that they did things. But here they, um, I, I probably should go back to, to make... Uh, you know, pause of what, it, what exactly, but I just am sticking here to it. says that they tempted Christ, whichever, however it was. Tempting Christ means disbelieving the providence and goodness of God and presuming to prescribe to him, which would be God, how he should send them the necessary supplies and of what kind they should be. That was a quote from one of the commentaries. I don't remember which one. But if you tempt God, you're saying, God, this is how it should be. And I don't have any practical 
I could say I was kind of kind of staying away from you know my ideas, but do you ever tell God how it should be? It says, neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. And as you know, the people came and they said, we're getting bit by these serpents. And Moses put up a, a brazen serpent and then you look to that and they were healed or, or didn't die. A whole other subject in and of itself. Verse 10, neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. And so here's where the Thanksgiving message would come in. If you were to have one, this is my little part of it. I wanted to know what the word murmur means, so I started looking, and it's really not much more than what you think it would be. But murmur, and it's numerous times in the Old Testament that the children of Israel murmured, not just once or twice, but murmur means to mutter grumble, say anything in a low tone, that's the part that got me. You just mutter things under your breath sometimes, and it's to people that you go, well, it doesn't matter. I can, I can mutter whatever I want to my wife. She's my wife. I'm allowed to do that. No, the fact is, is you are murmuring. You are dissatisfied. The complaining and the discontent, that all goes with that. God does not want that, and we're destroyed of the destroyer. And if you reference the story at Exodus and Numbers both, there was uh, 14,700 people that died in, uh, in a plague or some way. Um, and in some cases, the destroyer talks of, of the death angel that just goes through, and death is given until God says, Stop. And as we think of Thanksgiving, do we ever have a right or a, do we even have an option to murmur? It's a challenge for me. Um, we can find lots of things to murmur about. The choice is, is not to murmur and to be thankful. And verse 11 says, Now all these things happened unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. And Paul's saying, Those things took place for if nothing else, for us today. And the ends of the world, that is, he was saying, for, for you know, farther down the road, the people are going to be glad to have these examples that are, uh, that are written down, it says, for our admonition. And they are simply that, instruction and admonition for us. So we have something to go off of. Because verse 12 is a very familiar verse, and the context here is in chapter 10. It says, Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Paul has to put that word, put this verse in here. And it has to do with, you become a Christian, and this is all, you know, my, my own wording and, and idea, but you become a Christian, you experience the goodness of God, and you suddenly think, I can't fail. 
I have all these things. It's so good. There's, there's just no way that the, this is going to happen to me. I'm not going to be an idol worshiper. I'm not going to commit fornication, which, by the way, is stretched out into any sexual immorality, not just exactly fornication. It's anything related to that. I'm not going to tempt Christ, and I'm not going to murmur. I'm going to be thankful. He says, take heed, wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth, take heed lest he fall. And right into verse 13, we know this verse as well. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Paul is just adding to it and saying, you're not supposed to just think you know how to do it, so that means you're going to have to be willing to admit that you're going to be tempted. You're going to be tried, tested, and he's saying that God knows that, and he's not going to give you more than you can handle, putting a little bit in my words. But the word um, there in 13, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. That word escape I had to look at it a little bit, and it, it basically means see us through to the other side. Kind of like a ship, they said, that when it wants to make it to the place of landing or dock somewhere, it makes it through over to the other side. And that is, uh, kind of gets us off of the temptation, but sees a little bit farther, and that, that can be beneficial for us. That God will see us through to the other side. But that's also hinged in, uh, you know, the part of the deal is we have to do what our responsibility is in temptations. You can't just um, neglect what we, what we are supposed to do. Uh, that we can make it through these temptations. So moving into 14, Paul comes back again and says, Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. And that's where I'm not sure if Paul is putting all of this together. As I tried to study a little bit what idolatry means, I, I can't really find that you can put all sins under idolatry, and yet maybe you can. But Paul specifically comes around in 14 and says, flee from idolatry. And the first two of the Ten Commandments speak directly with that. In Exodus, thou shalt have no other gods before me, and thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. And in verse 2, it's, or verse 2, here in this verse, he says, my dearly beloved, he gets a little personal with the people of Corinthians, he says, listen, here is something that I want you to catch on. And he says, flee from idolatry. And flee is simply that, it, it describes it well. It's to run away from, to be not even close to it, to get away from it. But the word idolatry comes from two words, idol and service. An idol we understand. It's an image, anything used as an object of worship in place of the true God. But the word service, we also know, and 
know, like Brother Jay was just ordained, and you take the word deacon, and you, you get that word minister, and serve, it's, it's all combined, but you get that word service. And it, the one way it was described, it says, as in the service work that was done in the tabernacle of God. And there's numerous times in Scripture where it talks about service of God. Somebody did the service of God, the work for God. So you you got to put uh, an idol and the service part, the, the work behind it. Both of them together is what you get out to define idolatry. Now, what? how do we take that? Because idol worship does not prevail in our church today. I don't have any reason to believe that any of you have an idol at your house. We don't do that. And thankfully so. Other countries, it is a problem. And I'm not sure if I'm setting myself up for something else to study into, but the scripture says there's one kind of idolatry that is among us today. And we all deal with it, and even on a daily basis, and that is in Colossians 3.5, it says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness would be a whole other subject for another time. Verse 15, I speak as to wise men, judge ye what I say. This is this this him getting a little more uh, personal with, with what he's trying to, uh, to help here with the Corinthians in there. He's saying, I'm speaking to people. You can get this. Uh, you can judge for yourself, like what I'm going to tell you. And verse 16, we referenced it already, but he's, he's leading into the cup of blessing, which we bless. Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ and the bread which we break? Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Communion, simply like you heard, is fellowship. And he's saying, when you, when you do those things, you're fellowshipping with Christ. And verse 17, adding to it, For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. And the NIV uses the word uh, loaf for bread. And we understand that as we are all one in Christ and being one body, and yet we all partake of that one bread or that one loaf is what uh, verse 17 is is indicating there and in verse 18 it says behold Israel after the flesh are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the order so in the history of the children of Israel following the Levitical law and sacrifices they would eat of the sacrifice at the order and thus share in the worship of God with the priests. And I, for myself, probably overlooked that. And every time they would do a sacrifice, they would eat some of the food. And the priest would eat some of the food. And there's some stories that we know about it when they would, uh, would do that. There's, there's references of that. But that they would be worshiping together. The person that brings a sacrifice, the priest that helps go through with uh, all the things involved with it, that it was a worship service together. And there's lots of different types of 
sacrifices. I mean, it's just looking at it general here. And he's saying in 18, Are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? And maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here, but, well, let's just go to 19. And it says, What say I then? That has a question mark after it. That the idol is anything, or that that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? Paul puts those things in question mark, and he's basically saying, uh, putting in my own words here, Paul's like, uh, am I saying that idols are not a big deal? He's like, no. He's, and also, would he be saying that which is offered in idol sacrifices, is that no big deal? Paul's saying, no. You can't just partake of those and not have any attachment or anything uh, with that. He's saying, no, you've you got to be careful. Because verse 20 says, But I say that the thing which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would that ye should have fellowship. I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. When they would, when they would go and sacrifice to an idol... There was no way that they could do that without being connected in some way to that sacrifice or that worship. And in verse 20, he's saying, Pagan idol sacrifices are an offering to demons. And there, as we know today, and there's always been, there's a spiritual realm of darkness that's with us. And you do not want to be identifying yourself at all with that. Verse 21 states that. Let's read it. Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and the table of devils. If I was to understand this, Paul's saying, and, and getting into 22, we could put that all together. You, gotta, you can't be both. You, if you go, verse 22, I, it just, all right, I, this puts it in perspective. Verse 22 says, do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Basically meaning that a Christian, taking it today for himself, I don't know how it exactly happened in Corinth, but you take a Christian that was following the Lord, and he would say, I can go participate at the table of demons because I don't believe in them. So it doesn't matter to me at all. I can go there and it's like nothing's taking place. And Paul's saying, if you do that, you are associating with them and you are partaking with them. You cannot do that and then turn around and come on the other side and be a communion or partake in the fellowship of the Lord's table. He says, are we, do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And that verse really, I had to sit there and think about that for a while because in, in studying and what, uh, you know, some of the take of this verse is, is that we provoke God to jealousy when we think we are strong enough to dabble with sin. And you think you yourself are able to handle it. 
And in some ways, you're, you're putting a contest against God and saying, I, I, can, I can do this. In kind of a lot of ways you can take it, but the one, the one easy way for me was is to say, in looking at how God views down from top, that we provoke God to jealousy... Would a wife not be jealous if her husband would flirt with other women? Would God not be jealous if he sees the Christian brethren flirting with sin? Simply because they think, well, we can, we're strong enough, we can handle this. Go back to that verse where it says about, uh, you know, why did he put this in here? He says, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. He had that... He had that before. Who are we to contest against God? And the, the terminology there, it's, it's a little hard to, hard to understand it, but that um, idea of being jealous, God sees. He, he knows our hearts and what we're doing. Now, switching gears here a little bit. So he sets this up about how you can worship, yeah, how you can't worship, you know, with the cup of devils at the table of devils or demons basically a devils as demons and you know provoking the lord to jealousy verse 23 starts into a whole nother kind of realm of things he says all things are lawful for me but all things are not expedient all things are lawful for me but all things edify not so in other translations it would just say everything is permissible that's what the word lawful would mean. The phrase is repeated twice there. All things are lawful for me. And then halfway through the verse it says all things are lawful for me. Basically, uh, Paul is saying everything is permissible. I can do things. As long as it does not um, violate God's law and, and is a sin, he's saying we can do things. We can do these. And... Uh, but he puts these two words in here. The one is expedient. It says, but all things are not expedient. And he also says at the end there, but all things edify not. So expedient, how do I have it down here? I put the two together. But not everything is beneficial, would be expedient, or constructive, the edify, the building up. And this is the part where the gray areas come in. I don't, I don't know if I should bring it out now, but Paul is saying, I have the freedom to go do whatever I want to. As long as I don't violate what God says, and it's not sin, I'm free to do it. So let's see what problems that makes here in a little bit. Verse 24, he says, Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. And this, and the word wealth there is not money per se. It's basically the well-being of others. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it to say money. I would say the well-being of other people. And Paul here is already building up on this. Quit looking at yourself. Be careful of the other people around you. And think about the other people around you. And what they might be dealing with. And that's what he leads, uh, gets into here because in verse 25 says, Whatsoever is sold in the shambles, that eat, asking no question for conscience sake. So take these sacrifices that were given, 
And this is why I bring out to you a gray area. Take these sacrifices that were given to idols at the table of demons. Take that food that's left over. Move it to the grocery store, what they would call the marketplace. Take it to the grocery store and sell it to the Christian people. Should you eat that food that come from where it was sacrificed to demons? How many of you would eat it? No, I shouldn't do that. Let me back up. The reason I uh, kind of pause to think about this, because I asked Louis Hoover the same question. I wanted to see what he'd say. And he says the same thing that I was leaning towards. Yes, you can eat it. But let's keep going. You'll see what happens here. Whatsoever is sold in the shambles, that eat, asking no question for conscience sake. And that question for conscience sake means don't go digging up all this information to figure out where this food came from. If it's in the marketplace, it has no big deal where it came from. Don't even go try to find out. Take the food like you would any other food. You accept it from God. And you eat it. I'm jumping into 26. It says, For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And conscience, by the way, is a, a new definition for me. Now, we all understand it as conscience. You know, God speaks to us through our conscience. And I, that is probably the big definition. But when you think of conscience here, it, it puts out a little bit different angle as in the knowledge that one has or a co-knowledge or that you... Um, you just know about it. Now it's in your conscience. If you, if you know about it, it's, it's there. If you didn't know about it, you didn't know. Like it's, it's not there. But when you know about it, and the word conscience, uh, it does have to do with knowledge, some of the uh, original wording. And it helps me understand a little bit when it says about for conscience sake. Verse 26 was, For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now, verse 27 Paul sets up, all of you like these hypothetical situations, here is one. Paul sets one up and says, If any of them that believe not bid you to a feast, and ye be disposed to go, whatsoever is set before you, eat, asking no question for conscience sake. So you go to the feast, they set you a plate of food down, you are not supposed to ask, did this come from demon worship you don't ask this is verses saying eat whatsoever set before you and there at the last phrase says eat asking no question for conscience sake meaning you don't want to know don't have it be in your conscience you don't want to have to deal with it once you know about it though there's a phrase that says ignorance is bliss i think that's fits right in The thing that gets me is, is that us Mennonites, we like to know everything. We want to know exactly every little piece of the puzzle. What is going on? And this verse is telling you, don't go there. Don't ask about those little unimportant details that is going to sidetrack you. But we're not through with this yet. It keeps going. So in verse 27, now let me add to this my little spiel here about 
you know, we just want to know everything. I put down, is this a consent to not be asking questions about things of a situation? No. You got to, I said, what would, what would the wisdom of God teach you? When to ask a question or when to be quiet, you must get direction from God, the wisdom that God gives you, because you can't say and run away with this. We're not supposed to ask, so great. No. The wisdom of God, the knowledge that we have of how to live a Christian life, must still override. But Paul here is, is getting into a very nitty-gritty, practical place, situation that took taking place in life here, where he says, you stop. You don't ask the question. Doesn't matter. And I think for myself, I need to learn that sometimes. Don't ask a question. Doesn't matter. It's a big deal. Except the story keeps going. So just to satisfy you, it says in verse 28, here again, but if any man, it's keeping on going here with this hypothetical, if you'd say, say unto you, meaning they set this plate of food down. And then they say, this is offered in sacrifice unto idols. It says, eat not for his sake that showed it, and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now verse 29 says, conscience I say, not thine own, but of the other. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? Not sure if I should stop there or not. So, what Paul is saying is if a person brings you food and sets it down in front of you at this meal or wherever you go, and somebody gives you that knowledge that this food was sacrificed in demon worship, now he's telling you not to eat it. Why? Because of the other people that are around. And Paul here, it's, it's hard for me to understand this question here, but he's saying, For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? I took that as to mean, I still have my liberties to do what I want, and I don't care about anybody else. I can eat this. I don't believe in it. It's the food God gave me to eat now. I can eat this and... Nothing's really going to happen out of it. But Paul's saying now that even though you have that liberty, and now that you were informed about it, even though you know it, it probably would still be okay to eat it. He would take the, you know, the liberty to do so. He's saying, don't. You stop. You don't eat that because you will be, what's it say here in verse 30? If I keep going. For if... I by grace be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of for that, for which I give thanks? Paul just says, I'm going to keep everybody happy with this. He's not being a people pleaser, but he's simply taking the route that benefits everybody else. So if Paul would eat this meat, and somebody said it in front of me, says, this was sacrificed to demons, and Paul eats it anyway, what happens to the group that's around them? What happens today when something iffy happens? People start talking about, did you see Paul? He ate it. Must be okay. So-and-so did it. 
That must be all right. Paul says, I'm the liberty that I have. Why, why would I take that liberty and do those things and then have, an evil, and have evil spoken of me about it? And he says, why would, uh, in verse... No, it says, is my liberty judged of another man? The people are going to judge him for what he's doing. And then in 30 it says about the evil spoken of for that which I give thanks. Paul says, just remove yourself from that. Don't make a big deal. Just keep everybody happy. That's sort of in my wording. And there's a lot more to it than that. That sounds too basic and easy. But we get to verse 31. The, the one that we know a lot of. And it says, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. And I never realized that the context this, is, this was in was in this little detailed hypothetical situation that Paul uh, had given here. Now whether we can take this verse and apply it to a whole lot of other things, I don't see any problem with that. Whatever you do, it says, do all the glory of God. Whatsoever. Whatsoever, I think, is a very big general term. But what Paul keeps pushing at here, he says, do all to the glory of God. That's why he's saying, I'm going to pull back my liberty, and I'm not going to do that because it's going to bring honor and glory to God. I'm not going to eat it. It's going to offend somebody or make a problem. I'm not going to do that because we want to honor and glorify God. And in verse 32, it says, Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. And I don't know if how to how you can tell when you're offending somebody or not offending somebody, but the, but the offenses that you would make and that you know would cause somebody to stumble or somebody to fall is not bringing honor and glory to God. In verse 33, let's try to wrap this up quick. Even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. It shifts this whole thing from a view of yourself to everybody else around you. And Paul does say there, even as I please all men in all things. I have, I know I've told people that a lot, that I'm, I tend to be a people pleaser. Well, I read that verse, and suddenly I got comfort. Hey, I'm allowed to be. I can please other people. I got to be careful with it, of course. But not seeking mine own profit. And the word profit, um, not sure if I jotted that down. Basically, not for his own good. His own personal good that would come out of it. But the last phrase in 33, the end of the chapter, that they may be saved. Think about what you do, day-to-day -day basis. Whether you're offending somebody, whether it has to do with uh, idolatry, pretty well this whole, this whole chapter, like for myself I see it, I can kind of... And I want to, by grace of God, put myself in that same place as Paul did, where he says, 
that they may be saved, that nothing I do would hold anybody back from being saved. Now that's the end of the chapter, and I thank you for your attention and maybe sticking with me as I go down through this. But the one thing yet in my mind, I wish I had a clear direction and, and what to give you, is how does idolatry affect us today? And I, I don't know. How does it affect me? Like, I mean, idolatry is a, it's a serious thing. And how we can go through each day, and, and you know, my mind goes to everything falls under idolatry. I'm not sure. Maybe I shouldn't even give some of my own questions on, on what exactly is. But some of my thoughts were that comes back that when I start focusing on myself, I'm not worshiping God. And I'm not totally sure if that is all what's involved in idolatry, but as this goes down through here, do all to the glory of God. Like verse 8, whatever you do, do it to the honor and glory of God. And then Paul, like I said, just recapping, that what we do may help others to be saved. And I don't know if I'll ever get into, I just see in here on the bottom of my page, um, somebody wrote about the term idolatry is used to designate covetousness. Like I say, maybe for another time, but that's probably one way that we, we deal with idolatry. But that all that we do could be for the honor and glory of God and that we would help other people see the direction to know the direction to be saved in life. Let us stand for prayer and for the benediction.